Hey, before we begin, a quick reminder that today's episode is made possible in part by the Todd and Stephanie Schnick Foundation. Find us at schnickfoundation.org. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Let's go, y'all. You are listening to The Foundation Podcast. Our goals are to help you build the foundation to live your best life, help solve problems, better serve humanity, and to become a beacon to help inspire change. We connect you with today's leaders, affecting positive and impactful global change. And now, here are your hosts, Todd and Stephanie Schnick. Good morning and welcome back to the Foundation Podcast. I am your host, Todd Schnick. Became aware of uh, today's guest a couple weeks ago. I was researching some other things and came across them. Really interesting stuff. I'm really excited to dive into this conversation. Going to be very interesting. And I'm looking forward to hopefully collaborating with these guys over the next several years through the work of our own foundation. So let's get into it. We're joined today by Alexandra DeSorbo Quinn. She is the executive director of Pilot Light. Alex, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, Todd. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, excited. Yeah, me too. The pleasure is ours. I appreciate you making time to join us. I know uh, despite the pandemic that you guys are still awfully busy. So grateful for you to swing by and join us. Alex, before we get into the important work of Pilot Light, take a few quick seconds. Tell us a bit about you and your background. Sure. Well, I've been with Pilot Light now for about six years and actually moved to Chicago for the role. So that means I've been in Chicago for six years. But before that, I grew up in upstate New York and I went to college in in Philadelphia and at that time fell in love with public health and moved to New York, went to graduate school in epidemiology and health education and uh, worked at Columbia University Medical Center in Harlem Hospital, managing two federal grants focused on stroke literacy and health education in New York City communities and schools through that work, discovered that there's nothing like the arts to really engage children and youth in um, health literacy. And was a collaborator there on a nonprofit called Hip Hop Public Health, which uses hip hop to teach kids health education now across the country. But I've always really seen this opportunity within schools and within curriculum to be a strategy to reach kids where they are and to reach many, many children and youth across the country at scale. And when I found out about Pilot Light and the interesting work that a group of chefs and educators here in Chicago were doing to use core curriculum and in food woven within it as the messenger here in Chicago, I was very excited about it and applied and unfortunately got the job. So came on to Pilot Light as their, their first employee back in 2014. Oh, that's awesome. Well, and I would consider a chef an artist. And I love this idea sure. of the arts being a tool to help expand the education of, well, not just children, all of us, frankly. And and I, I really revel when I come across an organization that's using the arts. I just interviewed a foundation based in Atlanta that's using painting as a way to help kids that have gone through some trauma, which is just mm-hmm. a really, really interesting, uh, a clever way to kind of leverage the arts. And so All right. So Pilot Light. So for those listening who are not familiar, uh, give us the overall mission and purpose of what you guys are doing. Sure. So as I just said, Pilot Light was founded by a group of chefs here in Chicago, Matthias Murgis, Paul Kahn, uh, Jason Hamill, and Justin Large. And uh, they came together with Chicago Public School 
teachers and educators uh, believing that food education needs to be in every classroom. Every student needs to learn about food and about all aspects of it in a really holistic way in order to foster uh, informed decision making. So the mission of Pilot Light is to equip students to develop healthy relationships with food by infusing food into core curriculum and connecting the lessons students are learning in their classrooms to the foods they eat. And the beauty of that model is that students are learning through food. They're engaged in it. They're excited about it. Um, And at the same time, they're learning about food. So as they're learning math, science, social studies, English, they're learning about food and where it comes from and really all the information they, they need to make better decisions throughout their lives. I hate this notion that you're only allowed to learn or only expected to learn in a physical classroom. I always have viewed that the entire earth is a classroom and everywhere you you go, everything you do, every place you visit, there's learning opportunities there. And and I love this idea of learning through food and supplementing what they're learning in the classroom. It's great stuff. So as we record this conversation, we are deep still in the throes of the pandemic. And so we're going to have, I guess, almost two separate conversations. So bear with me here. Uh, Two-part question. So Part two will be, how are you guys navigating with your programming through Mm COVID-19? But the first part of the question is, so under normal, whatever that is anymore, under normal Mm -hmm. circumstances, how does this actually work? What's your programming look like under normal circumstances? Sure. So Pilot was founded in one school in Chicago. And over the years, we honed our model to make sense so that it could reach many, many schools and, and many students and be done in a way that um, can be customizable because we we know that every community, every school is so different. And in order to do that at scale, we've really focused on supporting teachers in integrating food education into core curriculum. So we have two sort of banner programs. One of them is our food education fellowship. And that program is designed to cultivate leadership in food education among K through 12 teachers. And through that, we offer professional development and coaching and support throughout the year. We work with the teachers to develop new lessons that can then be shared back with us to go out to even more teachers. And we uh, provide them with all the resources they need to implement the model in their classrooms. So those teachers get stipends for their time. They get stipends for, for food and other resources. And the idea is that through that, that year, they're, they're, they come out and they're fully equipped to be teaching about food on a regular basis going forward and to be empowering other teachers to do that as well so that they're not only continuing to reach the subsequent classrooms that they have and students, but they're, they're spreading the message and ultimately sort of serving as ambassadors for Pilot Light. So that's one program. And, and through those teachers, we're, we're learning more about our model and how it works too and how food education can be a tool to support um, student engagement and attendance and learning across all core content areas like math and science. Our other program, which actually just launched last year, is our our Food Education Center. And it's a digital platform. It's a, a digital library and resource hub for teachers. And it's designed to be nationwide. It's free. And it's an investment that, you know, we spent a long time thinking about it, designing it, building all of the lessons and and materials that needed to be shared out with teachers. And the timing just happened to be really great because suddenly, you know, we had this this digital hub. And then um, when COVID hit, you know, it made sense to, to turn there and to really think about how we could leverage this resource to get food education 
and distance learning resources in the hands of teachers and youth and families, not only in Chicago, but nationwide. So yeah, on a in typical pilot light world when schools are open and you know everything is fully operational, we're supporting teachers and delivering our model on a regular basis to their students and developing new lessons that can be shared out. And in a digital world, we're, we're continuing that, only really focusing in on distance learning resources for teachers, but also for families. Well, we're going to talk more about the Food Education Center in a minute. So it's cool to hear that this isn't just about teaching kids about food. I mean, this benefits everyone that's involved, sounds like, which is a wicked cool way to go about your mission. I respect that. We talked earlier about helping kids develop a healthy relationship with food. What define that? What does that mean? I, I, it's one of those things that you could ask 10 people what that means. You get 10 different answers. But in the context of your work, what's your real goal with that statement? Mm -hmm. To be honest, that's a question we were asking ourselves for a while. And we were approaching schools and teachers with our model. And it was one of the first things we were asked. And, you know, what, what is food education? It's, it's cooking. It's nutrition. It's sustainability. And, and yes, all of that is woven within it. But we really saw food education as being this umbrella for even more including like how food can be used to connect people to each other, where food comes from, food and advocacy, and, and how students could get more involved in, in food issues and, and access within their communities. So in 2015, we convened, I guess I should say first, we knew we could not do that alone, alone in defining that and defining it in a way that made sense for teachers and that we needed to be partners with teachers in, in developing that. But we also knew we needed experts and community members across all different disciplines. So in 2015, we hosted our Food Education Summit, and we invited leaders in food, in education, and child development from Chicago, but also across the country to come together with us and, and to really think about what could be included in this definition. And it was a wonderful two-day event. We got a ton of feedback and lots of brilliant insights into this and uh, convened a group of teachers after that to take all of this. And we ended up building out what we call our food education standards. So if your listeners go on our website and navigate to our food education st standards, you can see seven standards. Each one is broken down by grade level. And then there's specific competencies within each grade level. And then the competencies and the standards are cross-referenced with other sets of standards that teachers are using to develop lessons, like the Common Core Standards and Social-Emotional Learning Standards and National Health Education Standards, so that it's just this really robust resource and one-stop shop for teachers. When they come on, first they understand, you know, this is what we mean by food education. This is this very holistic definition in all of the ways that food education can support their students. But they also, they have a resource that they can use in developing new lessons that also meet their, their goals in academics and in social emotional learning and the other requirements that they have with their students. Uh, fascinating. Lots to think about there. You know, when I think about this idea, I think about, I mentioned to you pre-show that uh, I was a child of the 70s. So I was in elementary school in the 70s. And that was a generation of parents who, uh, you know, you were maybe kind of in the hamburger helper era. You know? And, and, mm -hmm. and I, looked, I looked at vegetables as a punitive measure and something that I would keep me at the dinner table for hours because I would refuse to eat it because it was mush. And it was just, it was not anything. And now as an adult, I'm proud of the fact that the first thing I go to on my dinner plate is the vegetable because I now understand mm -hmm. how to prepare them, how to appreciate them. So there's that. I mean, we talked at the very top of the show that this is an art form, preparing food. Mm -hmm. And I feel like way, way too many people 
don't understand that about food. It, it's merely an energy source and it's something to be consumed quickly and without passion. And I can't stand it when I dine with someone who's finished with their meal in 10 seconds and I'm going to have another couple hours because I'm trying to savor every bite. And that's part of the mission here too, right? In addition to the supplement of the learning and not, not to even talk about the fact of, of the health benefit of eating the right foods and understanding all of that. And, and I mean, there's so much here. I mean, I, I, I just feel like I did not come out of my school years with any kind of appreciation of what food was about. And it set me back and it took me well into my adulthood to finally understand it and appreciate it and make some of the right decisions and most importantly, enjoy and savor it. And that's part of what you're trying to accomplish here too, yeah? Exactly. And I think sometimes thinking back to how, you know, maybe I approached that in school or with, with other projects that I've worked on, sometimes that that lens of learning about calories or learning about how to read a nutrition facts label or how um, things should be divided up on your plate. It, it can be really limiting and almost sort of what you're saying, make food. It, it sure. becomes kind of mechanic. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of this approach. And I think, you know, something that that's so critical with youth and in decision making. And we use the the term often informed choices because you know, it doesn't always necessarily have to be the healthier choice. It's just understanding all of the different factors that go into why you're making that choice, whether it's food availability or your own culture, history or religion and identity and how all that plays in, whether it's advertising and marketing and what you're seeing and how that's influencing your decision making. If students, you know, aren't getting access to education about all of these things, then it's really hard to sift through a decision at any point in time and say, this is this is the decision I should make, or this is why I'm making this decision. It's really all of these other factors. And I think that's what, what you're getting at too. It's like, as an adult, you've learned all these things and you have you've gotten, you know, exposure to all of these wonderful fresh vegetables. And that's just, it's what we're working to provide to, to students as well. Talk more about the how this actually supplements what you're learning in the classroom. I mean, I, mm-hmm. my, my wife would always joke, yeah, you can learn fractions in a textbook. But how fun is that? Or you right. can chop vegetables and then really learn fractions. I mean, talk, yeah. talk about how this actually supplements what these kids are learning and how teachers are teaching yeah. in a classroom. Mm-hmm. That's a really great question. And it's something that can be really hard to describe, especially for folks um, like us who might not have been in the classroom in many years and, and have trouble remembering all of that. But also for each classroom and why the fellowship is such a critical program for us is that each teacher, each classroom, it turns into something so different because we really say to our teachers, we say, look at what you're teaching this year and think about how you can use food as that messenger to support you in teaching and to support you in your goals. And just an example, we have, uh, we had one teacher in our fellowship last year and she was a, a seventh and eighth grade English teacher. English language arts. And she wanted to work with her students on developing more descriptive language skills in their writing. So she came to us last fall and she was reading, they were reading The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. And she just said, you know, this is a crazy idea. What if, what if we brought in a butcher to do something to sort of talk about the Chicago stockyards? And so we were like, oh, we know a butcher. So we reached out to Rob Levitt at PQM, really, really talented, interesting guy. And he came into the classroom and he, he showed up at the school that day with a whole hog and kind of walked into the classroom. The students helped him bring it in. And over an hour, he butchered 
the pig and he talked through every piece of it and and really in a sense you know first how it's sort of an art form and you know how it's taken him years and years to hone his craft and then second um he talked about where they they get the, the pigs from and you know the different considerations they make in that selection process and how that's so important the, the farm that they'd sourced this one particular pig from was a really critical piece for them and for for him as a butcher but also for pqm and the students were just completely silent during this whole thing. They were just like completely engaged. And the teacher actually came up to us. She's a huge classroom of, I think it's about 40 seventh and eighth graders. And she came up to us afterward and was just like, I can't even begin to tell you, like, I've never seen this. <laughs> so anyway, she just recently shared with us comparisons of her students writing from the fall through the end of the year. And it's really remarkable how food was the mechanism that she used to elicit this such like descriptive language coming out of her students. And, and some of what she shared was about describing the Rob actually butchering the pig and like the crack of <laughs> And it was just, it was fantastic. And, was... and you think like, I mean, how else would you have gotten students so excited about descriptive writing, but also just this experience? I'll never forget it. We had some writings from students. And I know I also left that classroom that day thinking, I'll never purchase meat the same way in my life. I'll never think about this the same way because it was just such a, an amazing experience. But that's that's one example. And there that's are so many like example. it across. Yeah. I mean, I remember if you're not familiar with Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, do a quick Google search and you get an idea. What it, it was a, It's a famous book because it was, well, how would you describe it? Kind of like the first real tabloid kind of a... I can't, the word is, is escaping me, but it, it kind of brought mm -hmm. to light, you know, what was really happening in Chicago Stockyards. Mm -hmm. and let me tell you, it wasn't a pleasant story. And as a, heck, I think I was maybe, what, seventh, eighth, ninth grade, somewhere in there when I read, and I didn't care about the book. I, you know, it was, it was not of interest, but my goodness, if a butcher's in the room talking mm -hmm. about this industry and, and the proper way mm -hmm. to do it and how to really appreciate what you're doing and what every piece of that hog and how it's, you, I mean, what a, what an amazing, I mean, that, that story alone tells you everything you need to understand about this program. And that's, that is absolutely fascinating. What a neat story. That, that, that explains a lot. That's, uh, I'm glad you shared that. Because you also highlighted something else, too, that I thought was really important. And I believe I saw a quote from one of your uh, students on the website that you, you learn a lot of cultural lessons through this whole process, mm -hmm. too, right? I mean, talk mm -hmm. about that a bit. I mean, that, how important is that these days? Incredibly important. And I think what, what I mentioned earlier about approaching food education in schools through partnership with teachers and, and through teacher leadership, teachers understand their students and the communities and their, their cultural backgrounds. and they can take food education lessons that we have or develop new lessons and adapt them for their students so that they're giving them an experience that they need at that time or that makes sense. And it's really interesting too when you see we have one school, the North Side in North Mayfair, and somebody described this, and I think it's true, it's, it's almost like the United Nations of schools because there's just kids from every cultural background. It's, it's a an extremely diverse school. And the teachers, not only are they integrating, you know, food education into their lessons, but they're also thinking about how they can make those connections to families and how they can involve families in this process of understanding each other through food. So they hosted an event last year. It was an evening after school event and different students were showcasing their 
their cultural backgrounds and they had a recipe that their family had prepared and brought it in. We had one teacher at the school that had woven it into the classroom and she had the students fill uh, like a little lunch bag with some things that represented who they were. So so students were some like family mementos and things like that made it into the bag, but every student had to include one food or one recipe from home. And just to see them going up and presenting, there were empanadas and egg rolls. And I mean, it just was everything. And the students were telling stories too about preparing these foods with their families and just little pieces of themselves that they were sharing out with all of their peers. And I think too, like that's food is just this really beautiful way to connect with others. It's something, you know, we always say this, but it's something we all have in common. And I think especially right now when people are feeling very isolated and it's a big focus for teachers in schools or back to school, how do we support students who are feeling isolated and disconnected from each other with remote learning? Food provides that mechanism. So when COVID came and we sort of shifted to looking at our food education center, we thought a lot about how food is a way not only to connect teachers to students and students to their peers, but it's also an opportunity to bring families together at home. It's just a really stressful time. And ultimately, that's what we all need. Dare I say, it's one of the good things that's come from this pandemic is that families are dining together again. And, you know, I wanted to make the point that the program is not just about what happens in a classroom. I mean, this extends to the family dining room table. This extends to eating out together in the community. And just think about those richer conversations these families are having now because of this kind of a program. And it's really fascinating stuff. I promised that we were going to talk a little bit more about how you adapted to COVID-19. So talk about this family meal program of yours. And then if you can reiterate this food education center, because I went on that and holy wow, is there a lot of material on there? You could get engrossed into that for hours and hours on end. So talk about those two key programs and how families are leveraging those uh, during these pandemic times. Sure. So just like I said earlier, we launched our food education center in December, having no idea what was to come. Our organization, this is our 10th year, and we've been collecting all of these wonderful integrated lessons, K through 12, across all core content areas over the years. And we just had this rich library that we were sort of keeping to ourselves and said, you know, this is a way that we can spread our message, spread our mission, and put it in the hands of all teachers. And we made the decision that it would be free and that we would use the opportunity to really learn from teachers, not just in Chicago, but across the country, what they needed and what they were interested in. So that, we're very excited to launch that in December, had it up for a couple of months. And and of course, then there's the pandemic. (laughs) And it went very quickly. And we pivoted in that, you know, Every organization is saying that, but we, we did it within a couple of weeks because we saw the need to get this out there and to make it available to partners and teachers. So what we did, we created this program called Family Meal. And Family Meal is designed to be a distance learning resource for teachers, youth, and their parents and their guardians. And at the same time, we recognize, you know, with all the restaurants closing and how closely connected we are to the food world through our founding chefs how many folks are being laid off or furloughed in the hospitality industry? And with Family Meal and creating resources for families, we saw this opportunity to create videos, sort of like cooking videos, but to give generous stipends to out-of-work hospitality workers to create these videos for us and, and to share them back. So they're home, they're laid off. We've given them guidance on how to create these videos 
And we've given them this opportunity to share their love of food, their craft with youth and teachers and families. So we have the videos and we also created, we call them family lessons that are part of this family meal, but it's basically a distance learning lesson. It's something that's designed to be simple for families to do at home. It ties in with the cooking video. There's a recipe that goes along with it. The recipes and the lessons are in English and Spanish. And what's unique about family meal is that those family lessons are common core aligned, which Mm -hmm. we started hearing a lot from teachers and families that that was a concern. You know, how do we continue to meet these standards and these expectations? So some lessons are more focused in math, others in reading, but all of this together, it's like we said before, it's engaging. It's a tool that teachers can be sharing with families. It's easy to do. You can do it from home. There's discussion questions that go along with it. And ultimately, it's something that brings people together through food. And that's what Pilot is all about. So we launched that the last week of March. So I, like I said, we did it very quickly. We launched it the last week of March. And we just are wrapping up the program and sort of fine-tuning it for the coming year. I think we have about 47 of these family meal sets online now. For all of your listeners, you can go to our Food Education Center through our website and access all of those lessons, all of those videos, and yeah, they're totally free. So. It's, a, it's an amazing library of some clever stuff. And so just to clarify, these are things that teachers can use to kind of integrate into their outreach with their students, but also mm-hmm. these are things that families can just connect to directly and do something mm-hmm in the home themselves. Mm -hmm. And what do they need? So they're going to need ingredients, I suppose? or Yeah. And we've we've tried to make everything as simple as possible. Ideally, five ingredients or less, limited supplies. A lot of our our recipes are are sort of designed to be drawn off of what you have in your pantry. Yeah. Some of them are super simple and and adaptable. Uh, A popular one is, I don't know if you're familiar with Marcella Hazan's tomato sauce, but it's basically cans of crushed tomatoes with an onion and a stick of butter. <laughs> but, it, doesn't, it doesn't need to be any more complicated than that. Exactly. So yeah, it's a wonderful resource. And, and like I said, there's just under 50 of these sets on our website. So whatever you're in the mood for, you can search that library, you can see what you have available and connect with your kids through those those resources. Yeah, that's awesome. And we'll be sure to link up to that in our show notes so people can find that. It's funny you shared a story about tomato sauce. I mean, I remember when my wife and I were very new in our relationship and she said, we ought to make our own salsa. And I thought, oh, God, that's going to be hard. I mean, I mean that's going to be dozens and dozens of ingredients. And because I'm used to seeing the, the bottle I would see in the grocery store and have all this list of all this stuff. Well, most of that mm-hmm. was preservatives, right? And mm-hmm. when it came down to actually making salsa, there was only a handful of ingredients and it was mm-hmm. so amazing. It was so fresh. And I was like in my early 40s before I understood that and mm-hmm. what it, how that changed my entire perspective and understanding of food mm-hmm. when I had that realization. And I just... I think how different my my diet would have been and my focus on health would have been had I learned that lesson so much younger. That's what I love about this program. You know, I'm going to ask you to shift hats and put on your public health and your health literacy uh, hat here for a second, uh, kind of overlooking this entire pandemic and all the health implications of everything going on, and including your focus, obviously, on food. Any thoughts on, uh, do you think we're going to come out of this as a community more tuned towards health and all that that implies and, and be more focused on those kinds of things? Or I think we got to look at this as an opportunity to really mm-hmm. learn and really change and really rethink 
mm-hmm. our approach to virtually everything in our life, including our health. Any thoughts yeah. on all that? I have a lot of thoughts. And, and first of all, wear a mask. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I was writing an email actually this morning, a former colleague, and we we're just kind of remarking on how all of this language that we use in public health and that we've learned in school, it's now everyday language. Like, you know, I, I used to have to explain to people what public health was. And, and granted, this was like 10 years ago, but and now everybody's heard flatten the curve. Everybody's heard herd immunity. It's like all of these these terms that, you know, I never thought I'd be using in everyday conversation. And sometimes I have to step back from conversations with friends and say, I, I just can't believe we're even having this conversation. It's unbelievable. But it's also unbelievable that, you know, we're, we're facing this as, as I guess, a, a country or a world, you know, but also like thinking down into our communities and, and the ways that in our homes and the way that it's impacting everything we do and the things I think we took for granted every day that just aren't the same anymore. Um, That's the biggest lesson is that we don't take these things for granted anymore. And I hope we now, I can tell you that when we are confident in dining out again. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to so appreciate that experience because mm-hmm. it's what my wife and I miss most is you know, when we would block a, a meal at a restaurant, we would block a five-hour window because we love to just sample a lot of stuff. We love to just people mm-hmm. watch and, and just really be there for a long time. And, and mm-hmm. that's what we miss most of all. And I hope the audience listening and I hope those out mm-hmm. in the world are, are also going to be uh, not taking those kinds of things for granted. Two mm-hmm. more things I want to talk about okay. before I will add one one thing to that in terms of Pilot Light's mission in our health. And I think one of the the really troubling things that's come out of COVID and all of its impacts on our entire society is the, the health disparities and the way that it's it's impacting um, black and brown communities and especially those with comorbidities. So I think if anything, I think people are much more aware of this now and aware that, and as we've seen with, with George Floyd, but also everything else going on in the world today, people are much more aware of these disparities and that these are deep ingrained issues in our society that we need to be fixing. So I, those facts and figures that we saw coming out with COVID are the same across the board. You see them with, with heart attack and stroke and life expectancy. But now people are just much more aware of it because it's in the news and we're talking about it. And I see a lot of, you know, it it seems like things are are starting to change and because there is more conversation and and more learning, but hopefully that will continue down that path. You're here. I I agree with you. Uh, I think we've all learned a lot through this process and we learned a lot through 9-11 too, right? About us and who we are and and you almost felt like the kind of after time it just passed. Well, I hope that doesn't happen this mm-hmm. time. I hope the lessons mm-hmm. are learned. Hope they become ingrained. And then I hope we prepare ourselves to be innovative and think about, all right, how do we prepare ourselves for the next thing? Because there's going to be a next thing. As we close, uh, we've been talking about your uh, shift during the pandemic. Talk about your uh, virtual gala, the uh, Feed Your Mind at Home on November 6th. Tell us about that great event. Sure. So... Feed Your Mind at Home. Um, in, in the past, our, our gala has been just Feed Your Mind. And it's it's uh, brought together chefs from throughout the city, serving beautiful meals tableside to our guests. And of course, that's um, really hard to replicate in a virtual world, but we're going to try. And it's going to be about a 45-minute event. I will be announcing it very soon. And we're going to be recommending that our, our guests purchase meals from uh, different restaurants with all the proceeds going 
to those restaurants throughout the city because this is, yeah, you know, as we've been talking about, very, very difficult time for the, the restaurant community. And during that uh, event, we'll be sharing more about our mission and, and who we are and, and kind of giving a snapshot into the past 10 years of Pilot Light. It's, it's, it's 10 years and, and we've done a lot and we've grown a lot and we're excited to share that story with folks and share opportunities to get more involved and, and to ultimately bring Pilot Light into your, your schools and homes. Outstanding. Well, that's great. We'll, we'll be sure to uh, help promote that when that's uh, approaching. And for those listening, how can you support the work of Pilot? I, I imagine there's ways to obviously bring awareness to teachers and to families. I imagine there's ways to financially support the, the work that you're doing too. So walk us through all the ways that people can get involved. Sure. Well, our website is pilotlightchefs.org. We invite anybody who's interested in learning more to visit that website, of course, to make a donation if, if you're interested. And uh, through that website, you can also access our Food Education Center, which is foodedu.pilotlightchefs.org. All of our lessons, all of our resources are up there for free. And again, those are uh, classroom lessons for teachers, but also distance learning resources for families as well. So please visit that, check it out. Um, you can follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at Pilot Light Chefs. We post updates there. We post almost every day. So you can keep up with us. And of course, sign up for a newsletter. That's probably the other best way to keep up with us. Got it. Those resources are free to the public. They're not free to produce and make. So uh, understand the value of, of supporting the work that you do. Well, Alex, gosh, this has been a, a great conversation. I've learned a lot. Excited to kind of see where this thing goes from here. And uh, I can assure you that uh, Stephanie and I will will support the work of Pilot Light and, and uh, really, really excited to connect with you and, and figure out how over time we can collaborate and, and help each other out. That'll be a lot of fun. And as I said, we're, we pretend that we're foodies. And so we, we're so grateful for the work that you're doing. So one last time before we let you go, uh, should anyone need to connect with you and learn more about everything happening at Pilot Light, where do they go? They can go to pilotlightchefs.org, which is our website, and sign up for our newsletter, follow us on social media, and if you'd like to reach out, uh, my email is alex, A-L-E-X, at pilotlightchefs.org. Alexandra DeSorbo Quinn, the Executive Director of Pilot Light. Alex, it was great to have you. Thanks again for stopping by and joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, our pleasure. All right. It's all the time we have for today. Thank you for tuning in and listening. And we'll look forward to seeing you next time on The Foundation Podcast. The Foundation Podcast is produced by Intrepid Media and is made possible in part by the Todd and Stephanie Schnick Foundation. Learn more by visiting schnickfoundation.org. And thank you for listening. Now, get out there and do some good, and we'll see you next time. 